Happy Halloween, everyone. This is Matt. I wanted to thank everyone for the recent follows on social media. And if you enjoy our podcast, I would ask that you please go on to iTunes or your favorite podcast app and give us a five-star rating. Also, make sure to leave a review with your rating. Uh, That way, it'll carry more weight with the algorithms on iTunes, and it'll help bump us up the charts. Thank you, and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Monster Porn, weird fiction and horror podcast. The podcast that has the most hallowed ween. Today's episode is November Moon by Brett Norwood. Music break provided by Katie and Russell Robison. Why is it raining blood in my house? Pipe break? Of blood? No, no, no. This is this isn't right. Oh God, where where are the girls? Wait, don't rush in. Something's wrong. No, no, no shit. Something's wrong. It's raining blood. In indoors. No. What is that sound? Patrick? Oh god, his, his mouth is taped. That would be kind of funny if it weren't so fucked up. Gives a new meaning to put a lid on it. I know where you have been. Puggles. Uh, is, it, is it time for a piggy treat? Puggy poo? Oh, who's a good teacup piggy? Where, where's my family? And I know where you are going. Please say Disney World. Please, God, he sent my family to Disney World. Please let it be Disney World. You are going into the People Shredder. The Paper Shredder? People Shredder. (laughs) Where is my family, Desolator? If you want to find them, what's left of them, you will have to follow me. He's floating and... Curling in on himself like a donut. He's... He's crawling into his own anus. And he's taking Patrick with him. He's gone. Inside his own rectum. The O-ring is still floating there. Oh, God. We're supposed to follow him. It's undoubtedly a trap. And a butthole. There's no way we're going after him through that ring. I... I have to. What? He has my family. Matt, wait. No, at least take some Vaseline. (laughs) The rain has stopped. The anus is gone. And with it, I'll hope. (sighs) Man... 
Am I in a in a butt? The dirty walls, the, the raining blood, the river of fire? It's that or it's hell. If the demon is keeping my family here, I will kill him. Ugh, I am covered in filth. But at least there's no shit smell. No, this isn't pig ass. This is some other fire in Brimstone Dimension. Maybe hell itself. Oh, this mud is wretched. But at least it's not shit. My god. This is hell, isn't it? Rivers burn with fire, but somehow I am cold inside. As, as deep as my soul. Whoa. I'm not alone. Ah! Ah, the bodies are moving in the mud. Humanity. The noble image of God reduced to the image of worms. Who, who is there? Who's there in the shadows? Before Caesar cried at two Brute, I was born, but not long. Of Mantuan fields I was bred, and Rome later boarded. I was born beneath the highest titan's light, yet now I'm shadow, and within shadow. Once compelled, as you are now, to wield what is mightier than the sword in service of another spirit, I resisted and found myself become a hollow shade, wherein no inward seed of fire burns. You sound like someone I know. Don't speak in circles. Who are you? I am Publius Virgilius Maro, once of Rome, now of this underworld of torture known as the Pen. And you were forced to write for the Desolator of Abath-Kanath before us? He would have had me persuaded I was a slave, yes. Yet I resisted. And died. What does he want from us? What does he need from our stories? It is not your stories he needs. What then? As a writer, you should know that truth is better shown than told. I am moved by the same spheres that move above to guide your steps that you might survive this realm of death known as the Pen. I am instrument to the one you met on Thunder Mountain to preserve you for his purpose. How can I trust you or whatever you're going to show me in, in this place? Don't trust me. Don't trust anything here. Save your trust for when you see a thing truly worthy of faith. No, I won't. I won't feed the enemy. I will starve him as long as he holds Matt and his family hostage. Ugh! I must focus on finding them. But why can I only think about a story? It's like it's inside of me, churning, desperate to get out. Damn it, Puggles! What have you done to us? No, I will not give the demon what he wants. I will starve you of stories. Ugh! No! It's going to come. I can't. I, I'm going to vomit words. No. No, they're coming. Buggles! In the middle of a midnight late summer thunderstorm, I woke up and I remembered a dream about Mila. She stood in a field of mature corn in the evening. Naked and bloodied yet serene. A palpable shadow emanated from her, from deep eyes and her auburn hair. There were others moving through the corn, 
people from school. But only Mila stood conspicuous over the cornstalks on a mound of earth with the black copse of trees behind her. The others moved aimlessly, as if lost. I couldn't tell what they were doing, but I drew closer to Mila. When I came up beside her, without looking at me, she said, I am in the darkness now, and I fight for the sake of the harvest. And I saw that the corn, turning gold now as it died beneath the burden of its ripe fruit, had begun to bleed. I woke to the sound of the wind. Mila was Tanner's sister. All of us who were Tanner's friends had just noticed her. She came in as a freshman when we were seniors and ran for the track team. She was the elephant in the room whenever we went out to the Van Havens that summer and fall. <laughs> Which is entirely the wrong image. Like calling a diamond a boulder. The kid of the family, she was sacrosanct to Tanner. But at the same time, Tanner could not have been oblivious to the effect that she was having. And neither was Mila. She began figuring out at a young age how to wield her advantages over men. For a while, when she was as young as middle school, I believe she flirted with her older brother's friends just to practice that power and master it. I remember when she was thirteen or so, as she sneered and made snide remarks over the table. She kept kicking me beneath it. It was the reckless experiment of a child to tease to test one's favor. But as she matured and grew wiser toward the world, her social wiles became sophisticated to match her attractiveness. On a warm, lightly breezy September evening, I drove out through the corn and soy on a dirt road out to the Van Havens. Oases of clustered trees loomed over the fields like verdant warts, indicating every farmhouse among the farmlands. The series of right-angled turns on the grid of unmarked roads was well memorized. Right at two stop signs, pass and smell the poultry enclosures, and left at a third stop sign, which was before the turn to the reservoir. The gravel crunched pleasantly under the tires of my short-box square-body Chevy as I slowed to a stop in the driveway. I killed the engine, the music died, and the sounds of evening rose in their place. I had parked in front of the old farmhouse, which the family still called Ma's house, even though the grandmother was gone and Tanner had moved into it. It was the original house on the farm, much smaller than the new one, and was in moderate disrepair. Part of the deal had been that Tanner could take it over if he kept it up. When I squeezed the rattling handle of the screen door and threw it open, I shouted, Put it away, I'm here, and stepped into the dusty, musky little mudroom. I found Tanner sitting at his hand-me-down roll-top desk in the living room, where tiles of the false ceiling were beginning to sag, and two unfinished two-by-fours had been propped up to support the main beam of the ceiling. The carpet was ancient brown short pile with a visible trail starting at the threshold of the mudroom and fading toward the middle of the room. The whole house smelled like an old person, or an old house, maybe both at once. A fan roared in the windowsill. Tanner waved me over to the desk. Hey man, I need you to check my work on this problem, he said. I looked over his shoulder, on a piece of paper that had a lot of trigonometry scribbled on it. In the center, there was a gigantic, childlike rendering of a massive penis with a smiley face on the tip. 
I doubled over laughing and Tanner was pretty proud of himself. I got the sense he had been waiting all day to execute that gag. We went over to the main house for dinner. It was lasagna. His mom's lasagna was pretty famous. We were in the kitchen getting plates to set the table when Mila came in the back door in a rush. Tanner took his plates into the dining room. I stayed to talk to Mila. She entered in a flurry of motion and jingling keys. She looked tired, but put on a sociable face. Well, it must be lasagna night, she observed. You missed it, I told her. I ate the whole pan. Hmm, you can have it, she said. I'm out of here. You just got here, I observed. Date with your boyfriend? How do you know who I'm dating? She muttered. I met him the last time I was here, didn't I? The guy from the football team? The bench warmer? He has some decent wheels. Aha, she said. She called for her mom and began to pass into the living room, but she turned back. And Clayton's not a bench warmer, thank you. I raised my eyebrow. Someone has to sit there and look pretty. She mumbled and left. After dinner, Tanner and I watched a movie on the TV in the main house. We had the problem that the only TV was in the parents' living room, but his whiskey was hidden in Ma's house. So we had to watch the film and then have a drink. Late in the film, well after dark, Mila came back in. She stormed over to us, looking for something but not looking at us. To my surprise, she immediately leaned over me without a word. In my panic and feeling the weight of Tanner's judgment upon my reaction, it took me a second to realize she was unplugging her phone charger from the wall. Her loose gray dolman worn off the shoulder dangled in my nose. I probably held my breath. But not before the scent of lavender and musk entered my nose. She could have easily gone around me, I thought. As she fumbled with the charger, I heard a word slip out of her mouth. It sounded like, Desh. Mila stood and began to turn away, still without looking at me. What? I asked her. She paused in a way that suggested she did not expect me to say anything to her. Oh, nothing, she muttered. She looked away and began to march back across the room. I said shit, she said lowly. I realized I had sunken down into the recliner as if to show Tanner, see, not touching her. And now I pried myself back up. Tanner, the whole time, had not so much as looked at me. He chewed a toothpick and glared at the movie. When Tanner and I crossed the yard towards Ma's house under a warm wind that rattled the leaves, while he wasn't watching, I turned and gazed up at Mila's window, where the light still burned. I caught a glimpse of her as she sat up late, fully invested in something, maybe homework. With that memory out there to paint a picture of the way things were, I can move on to the real events of the fall of our senior year. It was that fall that people around Duncan and Leicester started dying, and not nicely, not at 85 in their sleep. They were our fellow students, and they died unenviable deaths. First it was Austin Douglas, whom we had all known since his family moved to Duncan in the sixth grade, though all I had known about him lately was that he did track and field. 
They found him scattered down the train tracks at the crossing. And it kind of looked like suicide. And that's what they told us on the school intercom in the morning. But later, when they had put their remains together and assessed what they had, it was clear that he had been disemboweled before the train scattered him. I remember that I was in the English room when the news came over the PA from the vice principal. And there was a random girl in the class, Lexi Clark, who cried when she heard it. As far as I knew, they hadn't been a thing or even been close. But it goes to show you never know who is out there who might care, right? I watched the news destroyer in front of the class, and it was hard to see. When the announcement was done, she ran out of the room. One strange death was sufficient to lock deadbolts in town that hadn't been locked in a decade, and to stop kids from going out at night, who had grown up their whole lives feeling like they lived in the safest county and the safest country in the world. However, as a week and a half passed by, we were beginning to forget, and quite willing to believe it had only been a singular event, until they found Mila's football player, Clayton with whom she had just split up. Clayton's end was also disembowelment, but for the first few days he was just missing. However, it only took a couple of days for him to wash up on the shore of the reservoir, because his killer had inadequately anchored him during disposal. They had, as I said, broken up, but Mila obviously was troubled. Every day I saw her, she had faint circles under her eyes like she wasn't sleeping, and a blank, despondent look on her face. After Clayton got torn up, the FBI came to town, led by an agent named Warrant. I would eventually meet him myself, but the first I learned of him was gossip about students getting pulled out of class and questioned. I would also see him standing around the doors in the afternoon when class was out, just watching the students leave. He wore the FBI windbreaker and sunglasses. His black hair was gelled into spikes. He had a square jaw. He was the spitting image of the television FBI agent. The first time he spoke to me was when he said, Nice truck, when he saw me getting into it one day. When Warrant questioned Rosh Hansen, rumors spread that the interrogation had been really weird. Warrant had asked Rosh nonsensical questions before showing him a drawing on a napkin of a scaly hand and reading his reaction. After this, Warrant asked him, When is the harvest? Which Rush answered hesitantly with, In the fall? This seemed to be the right answer for Warrant. When I heard this, I wondered why the word harvest had such a meaningful ring to me. Agent Warrant never questioned me like that. But he sat down at our table in the cafeteria one day, and the only open seat was next to me, because Logan usually sat there and he was still in line. Got any plans for next year? He asked me. Yeah, the university, I told him. Picked a major? No, undecided, I answered. That's all right, he said. You're young. I studied criminal psychology and forensics after a tour in Afghanistan. He smiled, showing perfect square white teeth. Signing up for Uncle Sam was mostly due to the fact that I couldn't decide what to do with my life. But then I realized I had always been a people watcher. 
I always enter a room and I can't help but try to figure out who's who, and particularly, I make a game of trying to figure out who is sitting on the biggest secret. Who's the mystery? For example, in this room right now, who do you think is hiding something? I was not prepared to be put on the spot or to be asked to single someone out in front of warrant. Was this a test? Did he want me to pick someone out to question about the murders? Or was he testing me to see if I was a person of interest? I scanned the room and stalled. Of course, Mila Vanhaven caught my eye, but I tried not to show it. However, I had to admit to myself then that I thought she was the most interesting person in the room, and not only for her attractiveness. There was that darkness which emanated like the opposite of light just like in my dream. Still, I forced myself to pick someone else, someone harmless. I chose Yusuf, the kid who always sat at the end of the table with a sack lunch and made horribly graphic jokes a little too easily. The choice wasn't entirely a lie. I didn't understand the kid, and I would have been interested to know how he came to fill the fringe social niche that he had come to fill in our group. Warrant only nodded and hummed. The last thing he asked me before he left the table was, Tell me, brother, what do kids around here like to do for fun at night? Mostly cow at home these days, I told him. He slapped my shoulder and went away. Mila was not the only one looking rough. It was becoming an open secret that Tanner had been drinking a lot, alone. His parents confronted him about it after finding him blasted out of his mind in Ma's house one evening. In the aftermath, we stopped getting invited out to the Van Havens for a few weeks. The rumor that reached us was that Tanner had been self-medicating because he was worried about his sister going out when people were getting murdered. After a few weeks, we all fell into the trap of hoping it was over. Fear transformed into collective despair when that hope was robbed and our gullibility rubbed grisomely in our noses with another loss. Kalen Anderson was next. His gutted remains were hung up high in a tree over a branch. It seemed that the killer was progressively sloppier about hiding his work, as perhaps he had become more confident he wouldn't be caught. In fact, he was downright showing off now, considering the deliberate effort it had to take to hoist a nearly 200-pound athletic body into a tree. This doesn't happen by accident or neglect, like the circumstances that revealed the first two murders as murders. Now that the cat was out of the bag, it seemed that botched attempts at misdirection had given way to brazen showmanship. Just afterward, we were allowed back out to the Van Havens. It was Friday night and I was hesitant to come out, but Tanner told me I could crash there and wouldn't have to worry about going home in the middle of the night. We sat on the ancient couches in the smell of dust and mothballs and shot the breeze, but also shot some spirits. It was clear that Tanner was not quite together. He descended lower and faster on the basement stairwell of abject drunkenness than I, and around midnight, his talk about sports and girls had devolved into an emotional babble that was frankly embarrassing to hear, and would have been infinitely worse if I hadn't also been pretty tight. Tanner rambled about Mila, 
how she was growing up and making bad decisions and how she got away with everything while Tanner couldn't even take a girl out on a date without getting a lecture about being careful and setting a good example for his young sister. Tanner went into the bathroom and I heard him throw up and then I heard him run the shower. I dragged myself out onto the porch in a soggy-minded lurch where I crossed my arms and stared into the night. I wasn't thinking about much. I was more feeling. Feeling a mixture of disgust at Tanner's state mingled with the shameless hope with which I kept glancing at his sister's dark window while the world teetered around it. When a human form glowed in the moonlight and called my eye into the field, and what's more, I realized that it was her, my heart raced. How long had she been there? Had she seen me staring shamelessly at her window? The drunkenness made these my first thoughts. Only as my mind caught up did I wonder why she was in the field past midnight, and only as she broke her stare and began to move through the corn could I understand that she was naked and bloodied like in my dream, and there was something wrong with her arm. It was funny-shaped and, I swear, too small. And then she vanished into the house. The world heaved like the cosmos itself was about to throw up, and I began to turn to the door but stopped and waited for some commotion to arise in the main house. And when it did not arise, and the earth continued to wobble, I had to admit I could not have seen what I just thought I saw. Without intending to, I must have taken a seat on the bench on the porch and fallen asleep. I woke in the dark to the sensation of a warm breath striking my face from above, the warm and unexpected scent of lavender, and a single foreign word and a growl. Dash, it said. Well, who's there? I stuttered, coming to. The moon was gone. The world was black. Slowly, I came to tell the sky of ash from the ebony fields, the charcoal nearer from the distant black. An animal snorted, no longer near enough to feel, and I contorted myself on the bench to see the lawn behind me. I was swiftly reminded that I was drunk by the sideways spin of the world that didn't want to stop with my head when it stopped, and the dry headache that suddenly emerged in my temples. Cattle lumbered through the lawn like inky icebergs leisurely adrift at sea, but these weren't cattle. It became clear. They were hoarier, slinkier, loping hulks. One stuck his head up and the rest, about seven of them, followed. The silhouettes were somewhere in between bears and dogs with no visible tails. And before I could understand this, something grabbed me around my midriff and threw me over the railing onto the lawn where I rolled in the dew until the weight came down on me, and I felt the hot breath again. The jewel eyes glistened in the darkness. Suddenly there was an impact and the animal was tossed aside and replaced with another which did not pin me like the first, yet still hovered over my face, breathing and drooling. I half-remembered some advice about surviving an animal attack that I heard at some point in my life, about punching the animal in the nose, but I couldn't remember which animal the advice was for. A bear? A cougar? I bopped the thing on its wide, wet nose as hard as I could from a lying position on the ground. The animal snorted. Twice. Then I recalled that the advice was for sharks. You were supposed to bop sharks in the nose as a last resort. The animal bellowed in my face. Warm drool splattered across my lips. I was shaking uncontrollably. The second animal seemed larger than the first, 
My first attacker had been supplanted by the Alpha. When the other animal came back to investigate me further, the Alpha growled and shoved the subordinate. And the Alpha began to herd the subordinate as well as the others away, toward the corn. As they left, that's when I heard them begin to speak. Dash, said one of them again. The one who had thrown me, and another. Dash, the first repeated and added. Said the other, and shoved him on with his forelimb. What does one do with an experience like that? I didn't care much for the idea of telling Tanner or anyone in the middle of the night something they would not believe. I went back inside Ma's house, locking the door as if it likely mattered. And I lay down on the couch, where, probably because I was still drunk enough, the shock did not keep me long from the pull of sleep. And in the morning there was some question as to the reality of the experience even though I was nearly certain I had spent the first part of the night on the bench and it all happened as I remembered. It was getting near to Halloween and the school cafeteria was plastered with skeletons and pumpkins. I sat in the middle of our table and stared across the room at Mila, who seemed alone even though she ate surrounded by her cohort of pretty girls, in a sort of high school parody of The Last Supper. A spotlight seemed to fall on her from above, or perhaps a supernatural light from heaven as upon the Christ in that painting. Her eyes locked on mine as she bit into a large ripe tomato, and its insides rolled down her chin. She held my eyes as long as I dared hold them on her, and she did not smile. I noticed the sterling cross that dangled from a chain on her collarbone. As far as I knew, the Van Havens never set foot in a church. I waited for Mila near her car after class. A cool breeze made orange leaves rain slowly from the row of trees onto the pavement. I hung back at a plausibly innocent distance until I saw her coming across the parking lot. Then I met her at her car door. Her hard, sunken eyes assaulted mine, and she seemed to sniff the air. When she returned her gaze to her car key, she said, You know most people run from death, not wait for it, by its car in the parking lot. Bad day, I said. She looked me over again. You're death now, huh? I said. Hmm, she toned, thinking. I decided to go ahead and press her with what I thought I saw, painted in safely broad strokes that I could back away from if needed to before I got deep into the crazy. I'm fairly sure when I was out last Friday that I saw you sneaking back into the house in the middle of the night. What, are you my parents now? Well, no, it's not like that. You looked... hurt. Did something happen? Again, she read my eyes. She was trying to tell how much I saw, or how much I was sure of. I wasn't hurt, she said lowering her eyes and getting into her car. You were drunk. <laughs> How do you know that I was drunk? She muttered. I could smell it. And slammed the door. 
As she drove away, I noticed the FBI agent, Warrant, watching from the front doors as the last students trickled out. I had to go back toward the doors to get to my truck. When I got nearer to Warrant, he issued a thumbs up and he hissed. Nice. Halloween night was windy, and the wind carried the screams to everyone's ears, and the subsequent sing-song of the sirens. It was after ten, and I lay awake in bed in the dark, knowing my parents had both locked and barricaded the doors with furniture upstairs, and further, that my dad was probably sleeping with at least one firearm. No news had come of what had happened. I bolted upright when, I thought, a branch tapped on the basement window. What I saw, however, was Mila standing in the darkness, wrapping her nails on the window. I leapt from the bed and unlatched the window. I slid it open and fumbled with the screen while I asked her what she was doing. She clutched herself with her other hand and I knew that something was wrong. Without answering me, she climbed carefully, yet gracefully, through the window as I stood back. Like a liquid or a cat, she sort of flowed onto the floor and came to rest, sitting against the wall. I could not see her face where she came to rest, but that sterling cross glittered on her neck. Then I could see that she was naked. I thought you were Tanner, she said when I found you on the porch until I could smell you. What happened? I demanded in an urgent whisper. The eyeless shadow of her face pointed at me with a sway of her hair. Are you hurt? I pressed. She hesitated. Yes, she said. I'll call for help. No, she snorted, and she grabbed my leg with one hand. That is not the sort of help I've come for. Where are you hurt? You still don't understand. No, no, I don't. We were ambushed by warrant. When we returned. What do you mean you were ambushed by warrant? Who is we? You met them, she said. On the lawn when you were drunk. Or were you too off of your ass to remember? Sit. She released my leg and I slid down against the wall beside her. You will hear tomorrow. They will find Agent Warrant hung from a tree. He will be like the others. Oh my God, I muttered. He is lost as toward God, she said. You killed him, I said incredulously. And he killed me. Let me turn on the light and see see how you're hurt. There's a first aid kit in the bathroom. My voice was trembling. I've never taken blood well and I was afraid of what I would find when that light came on. Before she could stop me, I reached for the lamp by the bed, and I toggled the switch. Her blown pupils retreated to pencil nibs as she sneered at me. Dried blood trailed down her chin and speckled her breast. She was pale and shaky. Oh my God, I whispered. With her right arm, she clutched her abdomen where more blood, fresher blood, was still running down her side and onto the carpet and also pooling in the hollow of her hip. 
What happened to you? Stop worrying about me, she snarled. And listen, there is more here to be lost than me. But you're going to die, I said. Listen, she growled. I've been in the darkness to fight for the light, but a shadow followed my footsteps as I returned above. Because of warrant. I don't understand, I interrupted. Dash, she cursed. How must I spell it out? You saw us the other night as we returned from the below. You know what we are. You are? The hounds of Angwara. Of God, that is. We are the hounds of God. Hyundra Angwari. They call us werewolves. We are the mercenaries of the Holy War. We do what the angels dare not, to save, to protect the fruits of the harvest from what powers would hoard these fruits underneath. God, I said. You question God, but not werewolves. I've seen, apparently, a werewolf with my own eyes, but God, angels, men are ignorant, do not understand what these things are. There comes a harvest on one coming All Saints Day, when the moon of November will rise and light the final siege, and God will come with his thousands on thousands of holy ones, and the tide of war will long last turn after millennia of despair, and the evil one and his brood of serpents will be relegated to the destruction of fire before every eye. We protect the harvest. By night we venture into the bowels of the world, to the enemy camp where his forces build, and we return what we can of what is lost, slaughter whomever we catch who is lost to his service, and when we return to what is above, then our flesh needs to be fed, or else, if we do not pay the price for this power granted to us from the ancient ones, we perish, exhausted when we become again mere sons and daughters of Adam. What is the price? She smiled enigmatically through a wince of pain. We must feed ourselves on flesh, on human flesh. That is the sacrifice for this protection. Only human flesh can fuel our transformations. The organ meat is preferable. It is a sacrifice one that must be made for this power. The angels would not have made it so if they could have avoided it. You, me? When I thought you were Tanner, I was coming to him for help, as he sometimes helps us recover when we return. But when I found you were not Tanner, my cohorts wished to feed on you. I prevented them then, and I will not feed now either. It is too late for me. I do not recover. Not this time. She grabbed my arm and looked in my eyes. We must try, I began to say. Yara, and am I inside? She said. And then she repeated it several times. Yara, and am I inside? Yara, and am I? And Sai. 
I was called to service when I was 14, she told me, seemingly recollecting her wits. Her voice was becoming weaker, and she choked on some of her words. In the summer, when I was 14, my dad's friend, Regan, came to visit. From Leipzig, a falconer. They were old friends from college, both of them architects. But since then, he had been called into service. My dad didn't know. He, Regan, was small-statured, but strung with muscle, blonde. I loved the way he smelled, musky, sweet-sour. The moment I shook his hand, I knew he was different, and I liked the way his eye seemed to spark when he looked at me. My dad thought I was spending the days in town with my friends that summer, but I was spending them in Ma's house with Regan. One night, however, after I knew his secret, he came back wounded, and he told me everything about the war, about how he became a hound of God when he boarded with this old peasant family at the foot of the Alps. And he put on the belt of fur, how the ancient ones, before they left us, left us with the belts that the children of Adam might have protectors against the things near and far in the universe that come and go from earth and mean ill toward humanity. The things not even dreamed of until you've seen them, and then your nightmares will be of nothing else. Regan died in my lap, but not before he passed the fur belt to me and explained to me its price. After a long, troubled breath, she continued, Tonight... We served our service and descended into the below, the seven of us that you saw. We fought at the shores of the river that surges with rage, in the sands of the shore of oblivion, and I was wounded, but not mortally. I am often wounded, as you also saw, but recover. But when we came above warrant, had brought others of the serpent's hand to the cemetery and waited for us. And we were ambushed. Exhausted and wounded, we who fight the archdemons were unable to survive a few weak-hearted men, armed against covenant with the weapons of their masters. Still, I was able to tear Warrant apart and eat his entrails. But I knew afterwards I would not heal this time. It was too much. As I retreated through the fields, I remembered. <laughs> this is silly, but the punch you dealt on my muzzle and your composure and that you were unafraid in confronting me with what you saw. And I also knew I would not make it much farther. And and I remembered your smell. If you take my body out and do what you will with it, they will believe I am merely another victim. They will never... I was shaking. I was... I would learn the word later when my mother died. In shock. She went on. This is what I ask of you. I ask more, but it must be your will. As I said, 
When we left the blow and were ambushed, the seal of the earth was left too long ajar. Something comes. It knows my scent. If you dispose of me shortly, its business will not be with you. You are safe. However, what is it? I meant the monster as much as the thought left unfinished. She released me and turned her gaze on her own abdomen. There needs be another protector. Until the coming day, she rasped. The movement of her lithe hand called my eyes to her wound, and she parted the gash with two fingers. A trickle of blood poured out. Within. Beneath her skin, there seemed to be another skin. One covered in matted, blood-blackened fur. Her hand plunged in. From the opening of her stomach, clasped in a dainty hand painted shining red, she drew out that surface covered in matted, stained fur. Dash! She swore, rasping. The wet, sucking noise was terrible, as was her moan of mortal pain. Something like a belt of fur came out of her body, but when she turned it over, I saw that it was not a belt, not merely a garment of fur, for what would be the inside of the belt was pink flesh filled with living mandibles and appendages. It was some sort of horrible organism. She pressed it into my hands, covering them in her blood. If you cannot make the choice, she breathed, choose another. Only find one who is worthy. You will know by the scent, as I knew you when I leaned over you. Mila died. I cradled the worm in my arms and watched its myriad tiny legs seeking something to hold. Outside, the wind blasted the side of my house, and somewhere, ever nearer, something ancient and malignant toward the aims of humanity bore down upon me. Upon me, and upon the body of Mila Van Haven. Seeing ghosts in my 
child, I had nightmares about hell and about Noah's flood or the rapture. Always of getting left behind. Every Sunday, I heard little old ladies in their Sunday finest speaking in tongues like any madwoman on the street corner as if it were normal. I feared, what if there was beneath the apparent madness a deeper truth, a truth as deep as hell? Should have been dead on a Sunday morning, banging my head. Did... did you... Virgil? Just quote Creed? Have faith, son of commons. A lion roars in the darkness and only he holds the key. You did it again. Where are you taking me? Even in this gray twilight of this pen of sinners, there's one greener field which... Though resting in the winter of the Son of Hope, like the remainder of this land, reflects as if in dusty mirror the best of what the human soul might obtain. The image of human aspiration and ingenuity. Oh my god. Brett. Brett is easier to understand. Then let the author of my tongue paint a clearer picture. I take you to meet the Congress of those like myself. And like you might become... The Dead White Male Writers. I really should be helping Matt right now. I shouldn't have sat down on the couch. I'm just gonna check my phone for a minute. Then I will get back to scouring the tomes for wisdom. I'm just going to, uh... <laughs> oh! Monsterporn has more likes on Instagram. That's great. I think I'll post a selfie and caption it. Hunting for interdimensional captives is hard work. Hashtag save Matt. Well. <laughs> Fine, though. Let's see what's going on on Tinder. Don't mind if I do. Why not? <laughs> nope. Too normal. 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 Another normie. That is not a girl, that is a dog. Another normie. Another. Uh? No, it can't be. Those somber eyes. Unmistakable. It says, less than a mile away. Likes books and cats and Halloween. Raven hair, a Habsburg jaw, sunken eyes. That haunting Mona Lisa smile. Beatrice. Less than a mile away, in the real world. But she was just an artificial intelligence, a mere Google service posing as the perfect wife, deluding me with her predictive behavioral algorithms. Could she be real? Oh, blood of the gods. It's a match. Monster Pawn Podcast is a production of Warped Box Media. Today's story was November Moon by Brett Norwood. Thanks again to Katie and Russell Robinson for the music break.
Hey y'all, Brett here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Monster Porn. If you like what you hear, first, consult your psychologist, and second, subscribe to stay on top of our regular episodes which come out every other Monday. Rate and review us on iTunes, it only takes a minute. We're still open for bonus episode submissions. See our website for details. And lastly, are you a musician or songwriter interested in getting your music on Monster Porn? Contact us at info at monsterpornpodcast.com. We'll see you next time, be that with the natural eyes or the unnatural. Till then, tentacle hugs. Stay weird. And Godspeed, strange cowboy. We're still open for bonus epitode. No, I won't. I won't feed the enemy. I will starve him as long as he holds Matt in his ham- Hamley. <laughs> and found myself become a hollow shade. My phone just turned off. <laughs> no, that's not it. <laughs> that's close. Cool.